Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, where authors of science, speculative, and fantasy fiction talk about their books and the world. My name is Rob Wolf, and this is the Friend or Foe edition. I'm excited to have back on the podcast Jennifer Marie Brissett to chat about her second novel, Destroyer of Light, which came out last month from Tor. Jen was on the show in 2015 to talk about her novel, Elysium, which received the Philip K. Dick Special Citation and was a finalist for the Locus and Tiptree Awards. The two books, Elysium and Destroyer of Light, are connected, but readers can definitely enjoy one without reading the other. Elysium is set in a post-human Earth after people have been wiped out by aliens, while Destroyer of Light takes us far into the future and outer space to meet some of the humans who escaped Earth's destruction. And those descriptions in no way do either book justice, so that means it's time for me to welcome Jen and let her do the talking. Hi, Jen. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. So, so glad to have you back on the show, because I loved Elysium and I love Destroyer of Light. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm really glad to hear that. And congratulations on the recent publication of Destroyer of Light. Oh, yes. It's been a long journey, but finally it's here. It's pretty exciting for me. A little nerve-wracking, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. Well, when I when I started reading Destroyer of Light, I hadn't read anything about it because I had full faith in your ability to make it great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you are quite welcome. And I, I was pleasantly surprised as it dawned on me as I was reading it that Destroyer of Light is set in the same universe as Elysium, albeit far, far from Earth in both time and space and has new characters and is a new story. But I thought I better go back and listen to our conversation from 2015. And when I did, I realized 
Back then you were talking about having started the novel that has become Destroyer of Light. And that was six years ago. And I I feel like it's been a long time coming from my perspective, and it probably feels longer to you. So I, I thought maybe we could start there. I was hoping you could talk about the journey from then to now, a bit about the process of completing the book and and why you wanted to tell this story, which is which is kind of the flip side of Elysium, because this story is about survivors, and in Elysium, there really were no survivors. Yeah, yeah. There, there seem to be two parallel journeys for me in terms of creating this book. I mean, there was the creative part, of course, but then there was the business part, and both journeys, both paths really were very difficult to kind of go down. I was forced to grow in ways that I didn't expect. I'm glad for it, but it's taken its toll on me and I'm still kind of recovering from all of that. I started this book, The Story of Light. I started that pretty much right after I finished Elysium. So Elysium, I actually finished in like 2011. It was my grad school thesis. And then it goes through whatever it goes through for me, you know, finding an agent and finding a publisher and all this other stuff. And then it eventually finally gets published in 2014. This book, I was just sort of laying down the groundwork in 2011, right after I finished grad school. And it was like, I had an idea of where I wanted to go with the book, but it seemed so far-fetched and crazy. But I just really wanted to know Well, it was two things going on. It was like, I wanted to tell this story, but I also wanted to know that I could write a second book. (laughs) You know, was the first book a fluke? You know, you know, I I mean, the first book was really just a lot of energy and me really just trying to really tell us this story that was just a lot of adrenaline went into Elysium, where the story of light was a slower book, a slower process, a more thoughtful process, and a more emotionally um, impact of a book than Elysium. Even though Elysium, for me, really was a, there was a lot of emotion in it. This one was different because it wasn't necessarily all my emotion. I realized at the end of Elysium that, that I explored a lot of different kinds of relationships, but I had not somehow explored the mother-daughter relationship. Like I had father, daughter, father, son, brothers, gay and straight and bi. And I did all kinds of relationships. And and I was like, this one kind of critical, critical, basic relationship of mother, daughter was just not explored. And I said, you know, why didn't I do that? And, you know, I realized there's all, all kinds of reasons personally why I might have just missed it. But I felt like that was a place to really spend some time. And once, you know, my mind starts thinking mother-daughter, I just naturally jumped to the Persephone-Demeter myth, because that is the mother-daughter, you know, and it was just playing in my mind, playing in my mind. And I realized that if I were to play with those themes, there's a story there. And I know a lot of people have written books about this pair and played with it as a theme. But I realized that the story of Young black girls are not really often told. And probably one of the most neglected, vulnerable groups of people on the planet are young black girls. Hearing Toni Morrison talk about it and really highlight that. Yeah, it's like I remember how vulnerable and fragile we are 
but are treated like we're grown women and we are capable and smart and all this and strong and everything. And meanwhile, we're these vulnerable, vulnerable creatures. That's when I started thinking about, because at the time there were lots of books coming out about child soldiers, but they were all like, what is the what with David Eggers and Ishmael Bia's book. And um, it was just tons of these books coming out specifically in Uganda, but also in uh, Nigeria about these boys who really gone through pure a beast of no nation and all this other stuff. It was really talking about the hell that they went through as soldiers and as child soldiers. And I was like, well, you know, there are girls out there too. And I'm not hearing anything about what their lives are like. What's going on here? And so I started to look into it. And then all of these things started to coalesce together that I realized these vulnerable girls they're the story that I wanted to tell. They're the people that I wanted to explore. The story that I tell in the story of light is entirely of my own making. It's not like a depiction of any one person, but it is definitely influenced by a lot of the different stories that I was able to eke out. And there wasn't that much. I found maybe one book I found an interview with a child soldier who came to this writer's convention called Yari Yari here in New York that I attended. I had not actually seen her, but the video of that event where she spoke was available. So I was able to hear her speak of what it was like. I watched a lot of documentaries and the horror that these women go through. These young women, these girls, they had to do everything the boys had to do on top of uh, of being constantly raped, living with the fear of pregnancy, living with the fear of getting AIDS, living with all of that, of saying or doing the wrong thing and, you know, not pleasing whoever their war husband is. They were considered war wives and all that. It's just a, a complete, utter nightmare. And I just felt like I wanted to highlight their story, highlight, and, and, and these, and, and then, you know, as I was working on this thing, the story of Persephone is right there. It is being told in, in every one of these girls' stories. There was one story where I saw that a group of women who were the mothers of these missing girls go searching for their missing girls and try to face down the soldiers to get their children back. I mean, it was a repeat of the myth right in front of me. It was incredible. And I just, I just sort of delved in there. I looked into a kind of a darkness that I never want to see again. It took me several months, especially with some of the scenes that I wrote, to even just get over it. Like I had to take time off. That's one of the reasons why it actually took a long time to write, because I was just like, okay, I need to stop now. I can't look at this anymore. I can't read about this anymore. I can't think about this anymore. I need to walk away for a little bit because this is just too hard. But I wanted to tell this story. I felt the story was important to tell. I think too much of the Persephone story and there's a sort of a, a glitter and glamour around this myth. But people should really, really remember what this story is about. It's about a girl forced to be something that she is completely unprepared to be, being trapped, being assaulted, but it's also the story of survival. 
that is the greatness of the Persephone story is that she goes through this hell, but comes out the other side stronger than she ever could possibly be and, and powerful. And that definitely is a story that I wanted to tell because it has echoes in culture all over the world. If you were to get into a room full of women, about half of them will say that I've been sexually assaulted in some, in some fashion, if not more. And yet there's so many survivors running around who have become these strong, incredible women, but with battle scars still on them. And that is the Persephone story. Like she doesn't really overcome what happened to her. Oh, my cat is sneezing. I hope I don't know if you can hear that. I did. Gesundheit. <laughs> yeah. My my cat yeah. is very politely sleeping on me now, jumped up quietly. So yeah. our cats can, can interview each other while you and I are speaking. He has a little cold, as you can tell. Aww. He was sleeping and then he just sneezed, just woke him up and he's sitting there. And when there are sounds, as long as we explain them so people who are listening <laughs> understand what they are. Yeah, I mean, we could always cat. edit it out too, but a cat sneezing is, is a nice natural break, I think. Maybe more specifically, you could talk about Deidre and Cora and their unique relationship. Who are they? And maybe you can also talk about how they were victimized even on the trip over in the ship that took centuries to arrive where they were modified genetically, I suppose, for a very specific reason and one that furthers the story and furthers human survival on the planet. But it was an interesting element that you added that makes them quite unique, but also very important to the society that they live in. I'm, I'm basically an immigrant, although I've been in this country since I was three or four. And the story of immigrant women coming to a new country, and in this case, the United States, but, you know, I've obviously put them in outer space. It's a story of what happened to women as we make the journey from one place to another. There are sacrifices that are made. The title of James Baldwin's book, The Price of the Ticket, you pay that price. And sometimes that comes in all kinds of ways of being abused and taken, being taken advantage of as you acclimate to the new country. And sometimes that happens to your kids. We don't tend to think about it. We don't, these are really invisible people. And Deidre to me is like one of those invisible women who come up here and in many countries work as maids, work as house cleaners, do whatever kind of domestic work they need to do. And nanny. And really just are in their history and who they are and what they've gone through to be here. And the children that they leave behind are not stories that are very glamorous, but they're very real. And they happen to a lot of, you know, Chinese women, Mexican women, uh, Filipino women all over the world. These are very desperate people who are in really vulnerable positions. And I wanted to really highlight that that the relationship that Deidre has with her daughter is she clearly wants better for her child. She wants her child to have a better life, but she's also is resentful of her child because she's going to get a better life. <laughs> and, and, I, and I wanted to kind of play with that because the story of Persephone and Demeter, when you really kind of look into the poems that have been in the Homeric 
him to Demeter and some of these. You see a tension between Demeter and her mother. They don't spend that much time together. They kind of live in different worlds. You mean Persephone and her mother, Demeter? I meant Persephone and her mother. Demeter and Persephone just really live in very different worlds. Persephone's life begins very, very protected. She likes to play with the nymphs and she's kind of living in a very kind of idyllic world, but the real world is sort of encroaching on her life. And then it finally does take her fully into hell. But in the beginning part, everything is fine, but it turns into something else. I mean, I just saw Demeter as an immigrant mother. Demeter is like the goddess that works. All the other goddesses kind of don't really work. (laughs) They don't have jobs. Demeter has a job. She works in the field. She works in the farm. She's responsible for the growth of things. The only other god that really works is Hephaestus, hammering out his <laughs> his ironworks and working in a volcano or whatever. But, you know, Demeter works. To me, I just see her as like the goddess of domestic workers. After she works in the field, she does become a nanny for a time. Her name does become Dorso. And she is a nanny for this other family that, and she loves that other child. She has to, because she's lost her own. So I just saw echoes so much of that myth, that ancient 5,000 plus year old myth with so many things that are currently happening and so many things that are really familiar to me that I really just dived in and was able to pull from that myth to be the undertone for this futuristic story. I mean, it's not designed to be predictive in any shape, way, or form, but I think by putting it into this sort of fictionalized, science fictional world, I was able to tell the truth by telling a lie, if you follow. That's how I approached the book, and that's how I approached these characters. I mean, Cora is... Just, I mean, you've if you've read the book, you've seen all, you know, you've read all the things that happened to her. Just really horrendous things. But at the end, she has to decide who she wants to be, and she makes those decisions. This was not necessarily a book about heroes. I think just about everybody in the book is a hero, and everybody is a villain. And the line between when one became another is, I made it nice and paper thin, and I leave it for you to decide. I don't think it's very clear, I don't, and I don't want it to be clear. As you said, Demeter was the goddess of the harvest and the farm, and Daedra is, in fact, able to, because of genetic modifications made to her on the journey over, to do something that allows her to be very skillful at the harvest. So I thought maybe you could explain that. You've given what I suppose... In Greek myth would be sort of supernatural, spiritual, godlike powers. You've turned that around and given a scientific explanation for how Daedra can do something. And and Korra, too, has what may seem almost godlike power, but there's a scientific explanation for it. So I thought it'd be interesting if you just took a moment to talk a little bit about what those things are that the the mother, Daedra, and the daughter, Korra, can do. The mother, she she was unaware of what was going to happen to her, knew something was going to happen. Because in Elysium, when you meet these people for the first time, a deal is being struck because she didn't have tickets to get on that last transport. But somehow a deal was struck 
for her to be on there. And she gets on with her daughter. How this happens, now we sort of find out. Here's the price of a ticket. You wake up and you're different now. You're capable of doing this thing. And her gift, her ability to convert these dormant seeds that was taken with them, the Kremer seed, that was supposed to help to basically transform the planet so that they could live on it and feed themselves. Her, her gift is, is a little bit more common. She's very, very good at it. She's probably the best at converting the seeds. But her gift is sort of a known and can be an understood and respected gift of being able to plant this great crop that people are basically living off of and, and terraforming the world. Where what Cora is, is definitely more mysterious. She's developing into something that her mother doesn't understand. Nobody really gets it. She's seeing the future. She's seeing the past. She doesn't understand what she's seeing. Her body is altering. And, you know, from when she's a baby all the way to when she is turning into a young adult, her, her eyes are not shifting back, turning back to brown which is normally what happens. The kids' eyes are all different kind of colors as they are growing. And then they, as you become mature, it's supposed to turn to a normal shade of brown. And hers never does. It does something else. It does, it, it's starting to glow a little bit and do all kinds of weird things. She just seems weird. She just seems unusual. And because her eyes are never turning back to brown, her chances of being able to go to the city and have a better life are diminished to zero. She's expected to stay out in the countryside and be sort of hidden away because she's just not going to get a visa. That was the life that she was expecting, that she's just a freak. And uh, maybe if she's lucky, somebody will love her and she'll have children and live her life out there. But then this big, terrible thing happens. And she's pulled into becoming a child soldier and she's having a fight and she finds that her eyes represent a change in her, a difference in her, that these, these soldiers have been looking for somebody like her, that a Coney wants somebody like her, that her modification is actually useful for something. And to grow up, she's sort of realizing that she's actually useful. She's not a throwaway. She's actually has some power after being told all her whole life that she's nothing, that she's of no value. And now she finds that she's something. And to sort of see that transition, I really kind of wanted to give her those abilities and give her those powers and do play with these kind of scientific, you know, hand-waving reasons why she is this way. But it really is sort of representing for a young woman to discover that they're not useless, that they're not throwaways, that there is something of value in her and, and in you and as the reader, as the, you know, if you can make those illusions and hopefully people will, to recognize that no matter what somebody has told you and done to you, there's something innate in you that can be very powerful and very beautiful and almost dangerous. I mean, she's dangerous. Cora is definitely dangerous. And when she decides to use her power, she becomes incredibly dangerous. But she has the control, or rather she took back the control. 
And all of the kind of monkeying that people have been doing with her entire life, she flipped it on its head. And I really want, I really enjoyed playing with that. And I really enjoyed watching her do the things that she eventually does. I felt very powerful in those moments writing those scenes when she really, really takes control and makes some decisions about who she wants to be. It really speaks to what you were describing as no one being all good or all bad because she is kidnapped as a very young girl by these rebels and she does suffer tremendously and is raped brutally and all the things you described and it it really is horrific. But from that, and when the leader of the rebels, Oconi, takes her under his wing, which is both protecting her, but also continuing Mm. to rape her, but also showing her how to use her power so that ultimately, without a spoiler, but it it allows her over time to have agency over who she is. So in a way, it is a, a gift, but under very dark circumstances and requires great sacrifice. So so there is, I mean, I think at some point, you know, he marries her. She's a child's bride. But I think she also, on, on some level, genuinely loves him. It seems, it's hard to know if that's genuine when you're a child and that happens to you. But she, he also does give her the capacity to access this power you've described. So it's a very complicated picture you've drawn. Yeah, and, and this is a very real one. You know, you hear of women who've been brutalized and and swear up and down that they love the guy. And, and that is not romantic love. That's something else. It's a twisting of the situation. It might even be a survival tactic. Like if, I, you know, if you could convince yourself you're in love, then maybe you're not being brutalized every night. Maybe this is uh, an act of love that's happening to you when it's not, you know, and none of this stuff is sane. But mixed in with this terrible stuff is our terrible truths. And how do you survive it? What does your brain do to help you to survive all of that? And then when, the, when you say you finally do get to leave this terrible situation, what happens to you then? How do you recover or do you recover? Are you permanently broken or, you know, or can you figure out the next step in your life. And I wanted to not not just leave it with her just being this brutalized person, but on the other side of that. And you know, towards the end, I'm trying to really show that she 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 is moving to the other side of that. She's figuring out another place for her to be. But you know that she's got a tough road ahead to becoming whole if if ever. But you have to admit she is a badass by the end, too. I mean, she she does maybe have some challenges, but she does demonstrate a lot of power at the end, again, without a spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I definitely wanted her to have that. I mean, it was in keeping with the myth, and it was in keeping with what I wanted her to have, for her to really sort of like, oh, this is mine. I was once the lowest of the low, but guess what I am today? Uh, I am, oh, you know... (laughs) All ye mighty, look me and weep. I'm not playing. <laughs> you, uh, and she's the defender of the whole world at, at one stage. And it's really, it's a, for me, it was a glorious thing to write those scenes. Actually, I uh, locked myself in a hotel room for four days <laughs> or something. Um, I attended Simon's conference and, you know, did a little workshop 
with them. And then the rest of the time I locked myself in the hotel room so I could finish, get those scenes out and only had room service coming in. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't hear from anybody. It was just me and the computer typing away to kind of get those scenes to sort of happen. And when they finally did, you know, it was like this feeling of relations, like I got it out of me. This is where I wanted to be. This is what I wanted her to be. And it was a really amazing feeling. That, that is amazing. I think I, 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 in, when I read Arthur Miller's biography, I may be getting this wrong, his autobiography many years ago, I was struck by how, you know, some things took a long time to do, but then, and I, was it Death of a Salesman? There was something, one of his famous plays, I guess all his plays are famous, he, he hammered out in a, a couple days or something in a cabin, like he just had to get it done, or it was just in him, or he was so inspired. And it's amazing how some things can be tortuous, and some things you're just inspired and on fire. And it sounds like maybe you were on on, on fire, or you created the fire by, by locking I, yourself I was, in that hotel room. Because I had been really struggling for a long time, and this was an opportunity to be away and, uh, for a while. And I just said, let me just do this. Let me just lock myself in the room and just do this. And that's one of many things that I learned in this entire process of writing these books is that, yeah, sometimes things come easy and some things don't. And you've got to push through all of it. It's tricky. It's tricky. And it's faith and belief and being calm and being all this stuff, a very almost spiritual kind of go into writing these books. And some things are very, very mundane of just sitting there and hammering out the words and then taking a look at what you got and saying, oh, God, this works or, oh, God, this doesn't work. And no book is the same. I mean, this is my, the book I'm writing now is my third book. And it's a completely different feeling than the last two. And the middle book is a different feeling than the first. I mean, it's just everything is different and you sort of have to roll with it. It's an adventure. <laughs> it's definitely an adventure. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. 
but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. There are a few things I wanted to ask you about, and we sort of touched on them. Cora moves from this region called Dawn, which is the planet's kind of hardscrabble farming region. She She's kidnapped when she's a child and spends 10 years in this frigid region of the planet called night. And then she ends up towards towards the last third of the book, she ends up in the kind of cushy, more cosseted region known as dusk. And Daedra also has to emigrate from one region from dawn to dusk. And when they do that, they change their names. Daedra yeah. becomes Doso, right? And Cora becomes Stephanie. Stephanie. Yeah. That's both referencing the myth, because those names have resonance with uh, the myth of Demeter and Persephone, but it also reminded me of, I mean, you've touched on this, being an immigrant, being forced to, whether because the customs agent yeah. at, at Ellis Island gives you a new name, yeah. or I actually also thought of an enslaved person who is forced to bear the name imposed by their their captor, the person who enslaves them, and they're they're assigned a name, given a name of not their culture or their ancestors or their tradition, their original, you know, ancestors' traditions, and they're forced to live a different way. I just wondered what to you was the significance of changing their names and how it's related to their life journey in the story. Well, I mean, to read the book is to see that I did, I played a lot of games with names what people's names were, had meaning. In African-American culture, and I'm not African-American, by the way, I'm, I'm Caribbean-American, but we have a similar culture of having multiple names, different names. There's the name you're given, and then there's the name you earn. And the name you earn becomes like your nickname. I knew a kid growing up, his name was Fat Daddy. <laughs> um, I've known different people with all kinds of different names and you don't even think anything of it. That's just the guy's name. And you expect that, you know, and, and I really wanted to play with that a little bit in this book. I mean, Toni Morrison played with it too in Song of Solomon. Every, you know, Milkman, that was the name he earned. That was not the, his born name, but you know, that's a whole, read that book to find out why he's called Milkman. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, and I, and in, in, in the Caribbean, especially in Jamaica, people have uh, a multitude of names that have no, you know, but they're more formal. You know, I knew a girl whose name, I knew her as Betty. And yes, her real name was Elizabeth, but she was also Anne-Marie. And, and you were just like, okay, this makes absolutely no sense. Um, but we just rolled with it. And um, that happens all the time, this idea. But the different names also can represent different aspects of who you are and different places in your life of who you are. And, and people could know you. It's almost like whatever the name is that the person that somebody calls you, you remember how that person knows you. Like, oh, this person knew me from school, or this person knew me from work, or this person knows me from the club, or this person knows me from, you know, from all these, these different aspects of, of life. For, for Doso, Yes, it's definitely in keeping with the myth because Demeter's name just came to Dorso. 
when the moment when her name changes, both in the myth and in my book, is like at that fountain when she's basically given up the search for her kid. And it's almost like she wants to be a different person, wants to forget this heartache of what she has just gone through and the disappointments and the hurt. And yes, you are correct about the whole immigrant thing of like when you come to a new country. I remember this was guy I went to school with. His name was Nelson. And I said, I looked at him. I was like, is your name really Nelson? Really? Your parents really named you that? And he's like, no, my name is actually Sai Ping. And I was like, Sai Ping? That's an amazing name. <laughs> but they gave him that name because it's quote unquote easier to pronounce. And I was like, well, that's not any easier than Sai. I mean, I could pronounce Sai Ping. And there's the element of changing who you are, becoming this new thing. That comes with good things and it comes with bad things. America is a place of second chances. So changing your name, you know, some of the immigrants might have been like, this is, I'm really new. I've got a new name. I can really start from scratch. And for other people, I've lost something. I've lost my connection to where I come from and who I am. So it's a two-edged sword. And I think I was trying to play with that a little bit with Cora and Deidre and who she becomes Stephanie and Dorso. I think it is a two-edged sword for both of them, this changing of names. Speaking of, of the two-edged sword, the good-bad dichotomy, why don't we spend a little time talking about everyone's favorite four-dimensional aliens, The and maybe you could say it for me, the Kresge? I call them Christie's, and in my head, that's how I hear it. So but I call them Christige. Christige. Okay, the Christige. Yeah. So that's for everyone listening. K-R-E-S-T-G-E. Yes. Christige. So they were once all bad as far as humans were concerned because in Elysium, they were the ones who destroyed human life on Earth. But things have changed a little bit in Destroyer of Light. Now on Eleusis... They seem friendly and they're integrated into human society, but some humans, like the rebel leader Oconi and and Cora, who is taught by Oconi, to think that these aliens are only living among humans so they can one day destroy them. So I thought maybe it would be helpful to listeners if you could describe what the the prestige and the lengths that they and their human friends have to go through to actually see each other and interact. Because, you know, humans are three-dimensional, the prestige are four-dimensional. And then I thought maybe you could talk about why you chose to portray them in this way where we're unsure if they're friend or, or if they are still a foe. Well, in Elysium, you're not exactly correct that they're all evil because the entire story is really being told to one of the Christies at the end before the meet him. Um, he's Tekek. And he knows, he realizes that, you know, one of the things he says is a great wrong has been done here. And he didn't even understand. And he goes on to write a whole history that was basically sort of hidden from his people of what happened there. And he's referenced in this next book, during the poetry session, like, have you ever heard of Tekek Zing and the writings of Tekek Zing? And people snap their fingers. Yes, you've heard. And he starts to recite some of the work of this person. So to paint the prestige as all bad is to not really be quite accurate. They're 
shades of gray. Everybody's a shade of, of gray in this book. These are people with mixed ambitions. They're not monolithic. Different people have different ways of looking at it. Some people have, I mean, even in Elysium, there was different people who had different, it's like, oh, well, my parents felt this way, but I think I'm looking at it this way. And, and you know, what happened here? Was it a cool thing or was it not a cool thing? Should this have happened? Should this not have happened? What did we do here? How do, do we inherit the evils of our ancestors? I hope you're starting to see some of the illusions that I'm drawing here. There's a lot of a difficulty in answering questions as to what kind of people they are, because to get to know one is not to get to know all. I try to present a variety of different people. The first alien that you meet in the beginning, the father of the missing boy, or the stepfather of the missing boy, he deeply loves his family. He's in a mixed relationship. He's really, really worried about his son and wants to do everything he can to try and find his son. Then you find out that he's deeply, deeply worried about the world in which he's made his home. And is willing to risk his life, if not sacrifice his life, in the defense of it. He believes in the peace. And are there heroes? Are there villains? Who are these people? I think the distrust that humanity has for the prestige is not unfounded. And it's not without its history and not without its reason. But the feeling of not being told the entire truth, of not owning up to past sins, to just sort of pretending that it all just went away because you've decided to not be that anymore, doesn't really happen. Time is not necessarily the, the complete healer. That honesty is part of the healing process. That openness, that being willing to speak to each other and see each other is part of the healing process. And this is a world that has not completely healed. This is a people that is not, they're still trying to figure it out. And I kind of wanted to leave it there for you to wonder, how do they get to the other side of this? I try to, and I, I, I hope this comes across, that the twins sort of see themselves differently over time. That they see the prestige differently over time as they get to know them and work with them and be with them. Right. And the twins are two very interesting characters like Cora have powers they don't fully understand, but they can read each other's minds. And one of them hates the prestige. Oh, he hates them bad. He has, he hates them bad. But then they take on this case of a missing child and getting to know this the stepfather of this child, who is, as you say, in a mixed relationship with uh, the human mother. And then he is a prestige that they do they do change their attitude. Yeah, they get to know him. They get to see what he is. The twins are um, um, actually sort of really fun because they were characters that existed in a, a story that I had written actually in grad school. And as I was working on this story, I realized, you know, I want this story to be a mystery, but to be a mystery, I probably need some detectives. And I'm like, do I have any? And I'm like, I remember these twins that I wrote. And I pulled them in and adjusted them. And I, as I was working with them, I realized who they really were. Twins do show up in this myth. And they're twins that people would not normally notice because they're not really talked about. I just gave them agency, which Hermes has a staff called a caduceus. And it has twin snakes 
going at the top. And the twins are always with Hermes. So that's who the twins are. <laughs> and I, like when I realized who they were, I was just like, oh my God, they've been here all along. They were supposed to be here. And it's just been fun to, so I, I mean, at one point I even play with, you know, like I have a character say, take your staff and get out of here. And I'm just like laughing to myself as I'm writing this stuff. These twins uh, being these, these detectives, they sort of almost remind me of um, a Chester Heim detective novel with their hats cocked to the side and, you know, just really tough guys who've seen things and done things, but really have a sincere soft spot for kids. They really want to find this boy that's missing. I, I don't even know if they're taking any pay for this particular, because they never really talk about pay, even though that, you know, they do get paid for this kind of work, but they show up and they do this thing. They're, they're fun characters. They were really a lot of fun for me to, to write. Hermes is a messenger god, right? And so their buddy is mm-hmm. Freddy, who is... <laughs> Who is a kind of a, a de- does deliveries, so he's kind of a messenger uh-huh. person. Uh-huh. And so, is there something there to Freddie Mercury being some kind of reference? <laughs> I don't know why you would say something <laughs> like that. I mean, not like he hums bohemian melodies to himself or anything like that, <laughs> or, or you know, or has a mustache or anything like that, or, oh. or does any of that oh, stuff. Oh my! So Mer- and Mercury and Hermes being the same i was just having a lot of fun with that uh, because I, mercury is a as a character hermes as a character is a fun character he's a great liar he's a great jokester he carries messages i mean you can go serious with him and you can go not so serious with him he makes zeus laugh zeus is often amused by the little antics of this kid that he's made he he's always up to something and so i I sort of created Freddie to be that, to be the person who's able to go from, he's the one God that can go from Hades all the way to Olympus. He can move all these different spaces very, very fluidly, very, very easily. Uh, I enjoyed giving him that ability and giving him the levity to lighten up the place a little bit. Even as things were getting sort of dark, there was always a Freddie to sort of like, oh, you know, He's on the right side of things, no matter what. Somebody you can count on. So, yeah, I just really had a lot of fun with the various characters that show up in the myth and like trying to figure out how they fit in and, and how easily after a while I found who shows up and how they show up and, and what they do. It was actually kind of magic to sort of see how this myth is flexible and how it can really sort of be modern and very, very easily molded into into all kinds of stuff. Just a lot of fun and uh, very, very deep at, at times. Where do you trace your interest in ancient Greek and Roman myths and histories? They are clearly fascinating, but h- how did you become interested in them? You know, this is a really interesting thing because when I started writing, I did not expect myself to be doing any of this. I didn't expect that these themes were going to show up and, and that I was going to start working with them. And so I actually had to do a little thinking, like, where is this coming from? And evidently, this goes back for me for a very, very long time. Going through some of my old stuff, I have a little trunk full of stuff from my childhood. And I remembered this book that I have, this little mass market thing that I must have bought for like $3 when I was maybe 10 years old on a field trip 
to the museum when I was a kid. Like the first book I ever bought for myself, and it was the myths of the Greek gods and heroes. I forget the name of the author, but it's just like for, for kids, but it was like a chapter book, quote unquote chapter book. And it's the oldest book I have. And I was interested back then. I mean, I think I was always sort of interested here and there. It sort of cropped up in my life in strange ways. I mean, I've never really thought of myself as becoming a writer. I had interest in reading. I was always a reader, but I, I just never really thought that any of this stuff would show up anywhere. I remember I remember once also on my way home from college, this book was just lying next to me. I was like the last passenger on the shuttle bus to go home. And this book was lying next to me. And it was like Jean Shanita Bolin, I think it was her name. It's like a, a youngin's understanding of the gods, the male gods and, and personality. I forget the name of the title of the book. I still have it, but it was just sitting there next to me, brand new. I guess somebody had bought it and left it there. And I brought it to the bus carrier. And I said, you know, this book is sitting here. And he's like, oh, it's been here all day. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) And so I took it home and I read it (laughs) and I still have it. And it was just something that it was really fascinating to me. And then 20 years after that, I'm writing these stories. So I think it's just sort of been strange how these stories have sort of been entering my life, entering my world. After the bookstore closed and I didn't sleep very well, I had terrible insomnia, which I still kind of have at times. You owned a bookstore in Brooklyn for a number of years. Yeah, for about three, four years, I owned a bookstore. And uh, after that closed... I mean, even during the bookstore, I had a hard time sleeping. But after the bookstore, it was just ridiculous. I didn't sleep at all. I'd be up all night. And there would be these documentaries on the History Channel, just tons of stuff. And I think at one point I did see a little documentary on Hadrian and Antinous. And I thought, oh, that was interesting. I just filed it away in the back of my head. And, you know, like several years later, as I'm working on this book, I'm like, oh, God, I know what I know what I could do. And it just, you know, all these things over the course of a lifetime, you know, of being exposed to, you just don't know what's going to influence you. It's taken me a little while to get comfortable with the idea that I've started writing so late in life. And, and I'm trying to get to the place of saying, no, I started right on time. Because a lot of what I write about now, I couldn't write at 20. I couldn't write at 30. This is coming from a lifetime of just living and living and reading and experiencing and all this other stuff and being open and curious and aware. I think the curiousness is probably the most important part and allowing myself to want to know about the Greek heroes. I mean, they're not the only myths that I have been exposed to, of course, but for some reason, they just have a lot of resonance with me. At least right now they do. Maybe I will move past them. My goal is to finally put an end to what I'm working on now and and move on. But for right now, they've been an influence because I just see so many echoes in these Greek stories to things I want to write about. And then now I'm discovering that, you know, a lot of these Greek myths are not actually completely Greek. Some of them are Indian. I mean, I've just been making these correlations between Arjuna and the Mahabharata with Achilles, and they both have similar things that happen to them. You're like, oh, wait a minute, these stories have been moving back and forth 
from the east to the west, from the west to the east, and changing and altering. And people have been doing what I've been doing for centuries and centuries and centuries and millennia of taking these same stories and altering them to make them into something new. I don't know if that answers the question quite, but that's what I've been doing. It answers the question and more. I think it's so beautiful how you were able to draw from various threads and memories and influences to describe the magical mix of things that have happened to you in your life and that feeds into this wonderful story that if someone were to read and didn't know any of these myths, wouldn't need to know those myths to enjoy the story and enjoy the drama and enjoy the complex characters. Yeah. And yet you've really given a window into the creative soul by describing these various things. And also the wonder of that that new book sitting there all day on that bus waiting for you, apparently. Because, I mean, anyone could have come along and picked it up and brought it to the bus driver. And I suppose that bus driver could have taken and said, oh, I'll drop it off at Lost and Found. But this, this confluence of things where finally by the end of the day it came into your hands is kind of also a wonderful metaphor about the creative process. Yeah, you just don't know where the influence is going to come from and when a gift is just given to you. And I, I mean, I do feel that I was blessed with that book because it was an amazing book. Even to discover that, oh my gosh, I forgot that I had bought this book when I was a kid. I, was, I remember being excited that I had the money to go buy this. I, I this just was fascinating. It had a picture of Icarus on there. And I was like, oh, I want to know about this. And, and it was my book. I could take it home, you know, and I could sit down and I could read it. And it was mine. Yeah, it's just, it's, 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 it is fascinating how uh, life works out. I love that. I just love that. So, you know, I have to say this interview has gone on much longer than almost any interview I've done, and it's wonderful. Oh, my gosh, look at the time. <laughs> yes. And so I'm tempted not to ask more questions, but there is one question that I, I guess I feel like I do want to ask. When we spoke six years ago, I asked you this question that sounds very reductive now and very a little too simplistic, but I asked you how being a black woman informed your writing, and you deftly responded by saying both that you were a bit too early in your writing career to make any definitive statements, but you also talked about some of your experiences or the, the challenges of being a black woman in the publishing industry at that time. And I thought it seemed appropriate now after all these years and with all the changes in the world, maybe both real and performative, but changes nonetheless, I thought it would be interesting to hear about your reflections now on the field of publishing and being a writer and what's changed and what still needs to change or hasn't changed for people who are, you know, maybe not necessarily just being black and a woman, but your observations about LGBTQIA or non-binary or people who fall into a different category other than the most advantaged category, but those who have been systematically disadvantaged or marginalized, and how, how things have changed or not. Well, I can't speak for all those groups. 
Right. I know. I know. I, I definitely, I definitely. Can. But I just didn't want to be so limiting. You know, I was going to say, just talk yeah. about whatever the hell you want to talk about. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think it's been a very interesting time. I think what's been happening in our field specifically is somewhat reflective of what's happening in the society as a whole, as a greater whole. There is some theater going on. I think there is some genuine people who are actually genuinely trying to make some changes. But the field has a long way to go. It's a long way to go in literature in in general, in in the book field in general. I'm glad to see that internships are starting to be paid now because that opens the door for more people of color who don't have the advantage of being able to have mommy and daddy pay for your stay in New York <laughs> while you do this job and then the, the whole field is just filled with young white women. I know that a lot of editors are white women and they love they, what they I mean, I, I know it's an act of love and everything, but to only have that both as agents and as editors and interns. And you can't just have one sliver of society doing everything. I mean, you miss things. We've seen the disasters of when they just blow it. And it's just like, oh my God, Uh, you know, just horrendous stories out there. But, you know, people trying and just failing and trying and failing. And, you know, I'm not even so upset about the trying and failing as in the not learning from the fail. You know, definitely in young adult, I see a lot of changes, a lot of growth. There's a lot of people of color and different kinds of sexualities and genders and other things showing up there. And I think that's wonderful. But you're not seeing that as much in some of the other areas, in science fiction and in our field. It's here. They're here. And it's starting to happen. And it was, it was especially exciting, like in, around the 2017 time to be Black and in the field. I think it was a shock to a lot of people in science fiction to have all these Black people not only show up, but almost pretty much take over there for a while, both in film, TV, and all these different places. It's like, what just happened? They just, they appeared. It's like, well, we were always here. You just didn't pay any attention to us. Well, that's fine. We'll just keep going on our own, and we don't need you anymore. And watching the field sort of adjust to a new reality they're having a tough time. And I think they're still having a tough time adjusting to Black voices being here. And to, from my point of view, is like, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't really care if, you have, if somebody's having a, a tough time adjusting to me being here. I am here. And I'm going to kick down that door whether you like it or not. And I'm going to have my books published and I'm going to do the thing that I do And I'm going to have a whole bunch of other people follow behind me. And if you can't adjust to that reality, uh, I'm not going to swear here, but, you know, (laughs) I'm so sorry for you. But we're moving ahead regardless. And this is a tough road. This is, you know, this has been a challenge. This book is facing a challenge. I, I see it happening. I'm not happy with what I see going on with Goodreads. I've been told to stop looking at those reviews and I have stopped. But there's some things in there that look daggone racist and it hurt my feeling but it would it scared me also because I felt like oh my god is this what people really think about my book and this work that I've created is it really that awful and of course it's not but that's the reality that there are a lot of people who really are just going to have a tough time and 
I'm not one of the first. I'm not one of the first people who've reached this level in the field. There's plenty of others before me, but there's not enough. There's just not enough. There needs to be more who can be at this level, work at this level, and stay at this level. The stories are out there. The stories need to be honored, respected, and read. There is a challenge of moving from being independent to small press to going to a bigger press. There's a business challenge of that. We spoke about that earlier. That is not related necessarily just to the creative work, but to the the greater world, the bigger world of being in one of the big five publishing houses, which is what I'm in now. I had to learn a lot. Some things were painful to learn. Some things were really great to learn. Some things were like, oh my God, I didn't understand that. You know, what things did you accept? What things did you need to change? What things do you need to say, oh, actually, that's a good thing. And some things, oh, no, that needs to not happen. It's all a process. And there needs to be flexibility on everybody's side to accept that people of color not only deserve to be here, but need to be here and need to have our stories told. And that the world is a better place. It's a more stable place with our voices being included. And that's reflected in the great the society as a whole, again, because if you see the last election that just happened, if you shut out all of the voices of people of color, we're living in a very, very different country, a very, very different world. One that's not so pleasant. <laughs> so you really, really need those voices to be heard. And if the warnings have been heard from those people long ago, maybe we would be living in a much better country. So to stifle one set of voices is not only undesirable, it's actually dangerous. We're living in the, the danger of it now. It's not just my voice. I'm not, you know, I'm just one of a chorus. But we, you need to hear the chorus. I'm not a solo artist. I'm a part of a, a group of people. And we're, you know, all going to have different tones and resonances and stuff within the chorus. But when you get together and you hear the voice, it's beautiful. And we, as a society, just need to kind of grow up. It's time. It's time. So, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm going on too long about this, but that, that's how I feel about it. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying all that. And I loved hearing it. And <laughs> I think there is no better way to conclude this interview on those powerful notes and the and the message you're sending. Thank you very much for saying all that. It is a privilege to have you on the show and to talk to you and to read your work and to have you share your imagination with the world. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate that you do this with me, that you listen to me ramble on. And, uh, and 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 uh, actually the depth of um, of your inquisitiveness in my work. I really do appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for inviting me. This was wonderful. I have been talking to Jennifer Marie Brissett, author of Destroyer of Light, which came out from tour in October. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for hanging out with us. Please subscribe to the show if you don't. And if you are so inclined, you can give the podcast some love in the review section of your podcast app. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. 
I'm Rob Wolf, and I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. I hope you're all having a lovely fall. Please take care of yourself and the world, and please keep on reading. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.